0: Ezra three ten through 13. Ezra writes, When the builders laid the foundation of the temple of the Lord, the priests in their vestments and with the trumpets, and the Levites, the sons of Asaph, with cymbals, took their place to praise the Lord as prescribed by David, king of Israel. With praise and thanksgiving they sang to the Lord, He is good. His love toward Israel endures forever. And all the people gave a great shout of praise to the Lord because the foundation of the house of the Lord was laid. But many of the older priests and Levites and family heads who had seen the former temple wept aloud when they saw the foundation of this temple being laid, while many others shouted for joy. No one could distinguish the sound of joys from the sound of weeping, because the people made so much noise and the sound was heard far away. Well, we'll... Unpack that in just a little bit, but let's pray this morning. Lord, we are grateful um, that we have an anchor uh, when the storms of life come. And Lord, uh, James says uh, that uh, not if difficulty and troubles come our way, but he uses the word when. And so we acknowledge that uh, we live in a fallen world, uh, Lord. J- Jesus said, in this world you will have trouble, but take heart, I've overcome the world. And so, thank you for the anchor that we have, uh, the anchor of Jesus, um, our steadfast anchor in his word and his truth. May that comfort our hearts today. Lord, we do pray for Lord, thank you for their uh, f- so many years of faithful uh, ministry here, attendance here, fellowship here. Lord, thank you that as the body of Christ in their difficult moment of time and challenging time that we can um, pray for them and encourage them and uh, let them know that uh, that we as a church body are thinking of them and praying for them. Lord, we pray for um, the campus of Michigan State University today. And Lord, again, uh, the fallen world in which we live. And uh, the tragedy of uh, of of lives that are senselessly taken that makes no sense to us, so we pray for these families we pray for those five students that are in the hospital recovering. Lord, we also thank you for the gift of life, Lord, we thank you for uh, a new grandchild, and Lord, we pray your uh, blessing on her and uh, uh, Lord, uh, may you just uh encourage um, as they um, raise their children, may they come to know Jesus and walk with him their whole life. Lord, now as we look into your word, we pray that you would open up your truth. Uh, give us listening ears. May we be like Samuel. Speak, Lord, your servant is listening. We'll thank you in Jesus' name. Amen. We are looking at the minor prophets, and uh, there's uh, 12 of them. And remember the structure of the Old Testament. We'll, we'll keep going over this because I think it's helpful to think about. But we thought about some numbers. 5, 12, 5, 5, 12. And that's, uh, five books of the Pentateuch written by Moses. Twelve books of history. The history of Israel. 5, 12, 5, 5. 5, five books of poetry. Uh, Job, Psalms, Proverbs, Ecclesiastes, Song of Solomon. Five major prophets twelve minor prophets. And so we're, we've are we already looked at one of the minor prophets. His name was Habakkuk. And they're called the minor prophets because the books are short. Habakkuk, three chapters. Uh, we started to look at Haggai last week, two chapters. And so our title for Habakkuk was a minor prophet with a major message. And uh, so last week um, we began to look at uh, the book of Haggai. So if you want to turn there, I'll give you a head start. It's the third to the last book in the Old Testament. And we'll dive into this book, Haggai. Uh, we have to reset our, our historical context. This will help us understand the book of Haggai. Remember, there are pre-exilic prophets and post-exilic prophets. The word exilic meaning uh, after the exile. Remember Israel's history that um, the Babylonians came and conquered them, and they took them a thousand miles away, and for 70 years they lived in exile. They lived as slaves, as servants, and indoctrinated in the Babylonian culture. Uh, and so a lot of the prophets in the New Testament are prophesying before that took place. That was true of Habakkuk. Uh, God's people had fallen far from God. Deuteronomy 28 lays it out, either obey me and I'll bless you or you stray from me and curses will come. And uh, and so the Babylonians was fulfillment of biblical prophecy as Israel had turned their back on God, uh, ultimately they paid the price for it. Now Haggai is a post-exilic prophet. In other words, now uh, those Israelites are back in the land. They came back in, in waves. The first wave was 50,000 when the King uh, Cyrus, who was the new world power, now the Babylonian Empire has faded. The Medo-Persian Empire is now the world-dominant power. And King Cyrus gives an edict to allow the Israelites to come back to their homeland. That's really, uh, the book of Ezra walks hand in hand uh, historically with um, the book of Haggai. So let me just give a quick quick overview, and we don't have time to read these passages, but in Ezra chapter 1, we can read the edict that King Cyrus gave to allow the people to come back. And then in Ezra chapter 2, it lists all the exiles that came back, uh, 50,000 of them. In Ezra chapter 3, if you remember, the first thing they did when they came back to the land is they found where the temple had been. And remember, the temple was destroyed in 586 B.C. by the Babylonians. Completely destroyed everything and desecrated the temple. So now there's no temple. The first thing they did is they built an altar and began to offer sacrifices. And then the people built the foundation of the temple But what happened as they were beginning to work for God is that opposition came. And there were some Samaritans there in the land, and they weren't happy that the temple was being rebuilt and the work was going along pretty quickly. And so all sorts of opposition came, and the work stopped. The people stopped working. By the way, we mentioned last week just as Part of the application uh that when you begin to do some work for God, when you begin to get busy doing what he calls you to do here here's a hint expect opposition it's it's coming because now you're in, now you're in spiritual warfare and and there's somebody uh, called uh, Satan who begins to work and so expect opposition well the people faced opposition and they stopped working they got discouraged and they quit. And that's where Haggai comes in, because the foundation of the temple was finished in 534 B.C. Haggai comes along, and he gives four messages. They're all dated to the very date. Uh, So there's four messages. Haggai comes along in 520 B.C. So for 14 years, the people have been back in the land, and the foundation's been built, but there's no temple. There's no walls. And so we looked at Haggai chapter 1 and uh, began to look at God's message. It was given uh, on September 1st, 520 B.C. It's laid out for us in the second year of King Darius. This is Haggai 1.1. On the first day of the sixth month, the word of the Lord came through the prophet Haggai to Zerubbabel, the political leader, the governor, to Joshua, the spiritual leader, and to uh, as the high priest. And here was the message. First of all, we looked at the, the, the people's excuse. This is what the Lord Almighty says. These people say, the time has not yet come to rebuild the Lord's house. So uh, they were giving excuses to God. For 14 years, the foundation was sitting there with no walls, and everybody said, God, it's not time to, to, to rebuild the temple. It's not the right time. And so God asks a very probing question. We looked at it. This is all review. Verse 3, Is it time for you yourselves to be living in your paneled houses while this house remains in ruin? <laughs> You've already remodeled your house since you've been back in the land and to paraphrase, you've already got your lake house finished and my house doesn't even have any walls to it. And so God through the prophet Haggai asked this very uh, probing question and we looked at the, in verses 5 through 11, the problem analyzed and it was wrong priorities. And any time we get our priorities out of line and God doesn't come first, then we usually run into difficulty and problems. And God lays it out for him in, um, in verse 5. He says, you're experiencing difficulty, uh, verse 9 rather, the last part, because of my house, which remains a ruin while each of you is busy with your own house. Your priorities are out of line. And so uh, we looked at the people's response, and the people's response was they got busy and began to work. And it was three weeks after they got that message that it says the Spirit of God came on Zerubbabel, and the Spirit of God came on Joshua, and the Spirit of God came on the people. And now we have um, the nation of Israel coming together, and they're beginning to rebuild the walls of the temple just as God wanted them to do. Well, that's all background information to bring us to our passage this morning, which is Haggai chapter 2, as we think about uh, the book of Haggai rebuilding the temple. And uh, as I studied this passage, I, groups of three uh, came out to me over through the whole passage. I guess uh, remember uh, the TV show Sesame Street. It used to be brought to you by a number sometimes, and uh, this message would be brought by the number three. Because God starts by asking three questions, and then God says three times, repeats a command three times, and then God gives three reminders to the people, and then God gives them three promises. So there's three questions, three, three commands, three reminders, and three promises. And so let's look at uh, the three questions here, beginning in verse 1 of, uh, of Haggai chapter 2. Uh, in the second year of King Darius, on the 21st day of the seventh month. So this is October 21st, 520 B.C. It's about seven weeks after the first message. The people have been working on the temple for about a month or a little over a month. They've been busy now rebuilding the walls of the temple. And God comes to them and asks them, Three questions. Let's look at it. Uh, verse 2, Speak to Zerubbabel, Joshua the high priest, and to the remnant of the people. There were 50,000 of them. Ask them, Who of you is left who saw this house in its former glory? How does it look to you now? Does it seem to you like nothing? Three interesting questions. Who here? Is left that saw the first temple, Solomon's temple. Uh, the second question, how, how does it look to you now? Doesn't it look like nothing? Now, we need to remember, whenever God asks a question in the Bible, it's not because he doesn't know. He asks a question for our benefit. And so he's asking this question. He already knows what the people are thinking. And so the first question is, Who of you is left who saw this house, Solomon's temple, in its former glory? Now, we need to do a little bit of math here. The temple was destroyed in 586 B.C. This is 520 B.C. So in order to have seen the previous temple, you would have been a baby, but you would have to be at least 66 years old. Uh the people have been taken captive before that. So um, he, he realistically, you probably had to be in your mid seventies to have remembered the former temple of Solomon. It was a glorious temple. It, it, took, it took Solomon, I think it was seven years to build, and and the, the, the temple was a magnificent structure. And so he's asking, who remembers that temple? And then he, he asks the interesting question, how does it look now? Does it look or seem to you like nothing? Now remember when we read our scripture reading from Ezra uh, chapter 3, when they laid the foundation of the temple when they first came back. Remember verse 12, it says, many of the older priests and Levites and family heads who had seen Solomon's temple wept aloud when they saw the foundation of this temple being laid. Why were they crying? If they weren't tears of joy. They were crying because the foundation of the temple did not look anything like what Solomon's temple looked like. It was much smaller. It was, it was not going to be this magnificent structure. And so the older people, while the others were rejoicing and and, uh, happy, the older people were crying because they were remembering uh, Solomon's temple, the first temple. So those are the three questions. Uh, But now God gives a command, and he gives it three times. He gives it to Zerubbabel, the political leader, to Joshua, the spiritual leader, and to the remnant. Let's look at it. uh, Verse 4. But now be strong, Zerubbabel, declares the Lord. Be strong, Joshua, son of Jazedek, the high priest. Be strong, all you people of the land. <laughs> so what does God say to them? Is there? They've been working about a month now on the project, and he's like, I want you to be strong. He repeats it three times. It's the same words that he gave to Joshua uh, centuries earlier when they were about to come in and conquer the land. Hey, Joshua, be strong and don't be discouraged. I'm with you. It's the same words that David gave to Solomon when he built the temple the first time. He said, Solomon, my son, you need to be strong and complete this project and do the work. It's the same words that God gives to us in Ephesians chapter 6, verse 10, when we face challenges in our lives. Be strong in the Lord. Put on the whole armor of God. And so we need to be reminded um, when we face challenges and we face projects and uh, not to be discouraged um, how important it is to encourage one another. And so God comes and says, be strong, Joshua. Be strong, Zerubbabel. Be strong, all you people. And then he gives three reminders. He doesn't just say be strong and leave it there, but the last part of verse 4, be strong and work for I am with you. Don't stop working. And as we look at the rest of the story, it took them four years to finish the temple. And more opposition came, just as it came the first time. But when the opposition came a second time, the people persevered and kept on working. And so he reminds them, don't stop working. Keep working. Keep building. Don't get discouraged a second reminder he tells them in verse 5 um, is this this is what i covenanted with you when you came out of egypt you're my covenant people and my spirit remains among you you need to keep on working because i'm with you but also remember that my spirit is with you now when we uh, the people started the work in chapter 1 and and um They began to build the foundation. It it says in verse 14, the Lord stirred up the spirit of Zerubbabel and the spirit of Joshua and the spirit of the whole remnant of the people. They came and they began to work on the house of the Lord Almighty, their God. So he's reminding them, keep on working, I'm with you, and guess what? My spirit is with you. Now remember in the Old Testament that the Holy Spirit kind of came and went and empowered people for special tasks. And uh, we look at that in the life of Samson, as one of Israel's judges. The Spirit of God was with them, and then the Spirit of God left. We're in a far different position, aren't we, in the church age, because the Spirit of God lives within us. But he's reminding them, uh, don't do this in your own strength. My Spirit remains among you. And then thirdly, here's what he reminds them, do not fear, verse 5, last part, do not be afraid. One of Satan's greatest tactics in our lives is fear. He wants us to be afraid. Second Timothy 1, 7, God hasn't given us a spirit of fear, timidity, but of love, power, and of a sound mind. Satan loves to keep us enchained in, in fear. I love Psalm 56, 3 and 4. It's, it's a great, great promise and a great verse, a very simple verse. But Psalm 56, when I am afraid, we're all going to be afraid. We get afraid as, as kids. Um, our Fear really never leaves us. Our fears kind of change and morph as we get older. When I am afraid, I will put my trust in you. In God, whose word I praise, in God I trust, and I am not afraid. And so, don't be afraid. Keep working. Keep building the temple. And we need to be reminded of those words as well. Don't let fear uh, grip your heart. Uh, June Hunt wrote a little booklet called Fear No Longer Afraid, and let me just quote from that book. Here's the wrong belief. The wrong belief is, I have no control over my fear. My only recourse is to avoid all fearful situations. That's that's wrong thinking. Here's, here's the right belief. As I face my fear in the strength of the Lord, my fear will not control me. Christ lives in me, and as I focus on his perfect love and his perfect truth... I will feel his perfect peace in the midst of every fear producing situation. We're all going to be afraid, but that's an opportunity to what? To put our trust in God and God alone. Well, the passage concludes with uh, three promises then, and we'll look at them quickly and then we'll look at some application truths. So, uh, three questions. Uh, Three times repeated command, be strong, be strong, be strong. Three reminders. Now, here's the three promises as they're rebuilding the temple. Here's the first one. A day of judgment is coming. A day of judgment is coming. This is what the Lord Almighty says. In a little while, in the context it means suddenly, not in a short period of time, not like in two or three weeks, it means suddenly. I will once more shake the heavens and the earth, the sea and the dry land. I will shake all nations, and what is desired by all nations will come. And I will fill this house with glory, says the Lord Almighty. My one study Bible says when God promised to shake all the nations, he's speaking of both his present judgment on evil nations and a future judgment coming in the last days i.e. the book of Revelation. Uh, What does Jesus say in uh, the uh, Olivet Discourse in Matthew chapter 24, which is a a teaching on the future? Uh, Jesus speaking to his disciples, immediately after those days of distress, the sun will be darkened, the moon will not give its light, the stars will fall from the sky, the heavenly bodies will be shaken, Then will appear the sign of the Son of Man in heaven, and then all the peoples of the earth will mourn when they see the Son of Man coming on the clouds of heaven with power and great glory. He's reminding them there's a day of future judgment coming when God is going to shake the nations and shake the heavens, and and as I mentioned, i.e., the book of of Revelation. There's a second promise here, and it's found in verse 8. And it's this, God owns everything. It's an interesting statement. The silver is mine and the gold is mine, declares the Lord Almighty. God's never lacking in resources. God owns everything. The song says the cattle on a thousand hills are his. He never lacks resources. God owns it all. We need to be reminded of that as well, don't we? That we're simply stewards of what God has blessed us with. And that God owns everything. And so he reminds the Israelites that, that the silver is his and the gold is his. But I want to camp for a little longer on this third promise. This is interesting. The third one is that the glory of this temple will be greater than the glory of the former temple. I might say, well, wait a second. I thought when we read in Ezra that when the older people who remembered the first temple saw the foundation of the second temple, they were crying because it was going to be so much smaller and and not as glorious as Solomon's temple. And here God comes along and he says, the glory of this temple will be far greater than the glory of the incredible temple that Solomon built. Verse nine, um, the last part says, "And in this place I will grant peace," declares the Lord Almighty. So, what is what is God saying here? Well, while uh, Solomon's temple had occasionally the glory of God come on it, and it was uh, something called the Shekinah glory, you won't. Read the word "shekinah" in the New Testament, but it's just a description of of God's spirit and God's presence that would uh, uh, fill fill the temple. That happened at the dedication of Solomon's temple. While that happened a few times in in Solomon's temple, the glory of the second temple will be greater. Why? Guess what? Guess who's going to walk into that temple? Guess who? Well, is going to be first carried into the temple. The Messiah. That when Jesus was eight days old, Mary and Joseph came to, to do the naming of Jesus and, and what was required to give offerings. And the Messiah came into the temple carried by Mary and Joseph. And remember, I think it was Simeon that, that took him in his arms and says, now I can depart in peace because I've seen the Messiah. A little later on uh, Jesus probably many times went to the temple as was required three times a year of Jewish males to to physically go to the temple to celebrate one of the feasts. Jesus probably went along with his family many times. In fact, the only story that we have in the Bible of Jesus as as a young person or teenager was when he was 12 years old. And here they are, they went to the temple to celebrate one of the feasts and now they 're on their 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 way home and they 're traveling in groups and Mary looks at joseph and says uh, where 's jesus?" and Joseph says, "Well, I thought you had him and uh, Mary says, "I thought you had him <laughs> and they look around he 's not there, so they turn around and they go back uh, what's Jesus as twelve years old is interacting with the the rabbis and the teachers in the temple? Why did God say the glory of the second temple is greater than the glory of the first temple, it's because, guess who came into the second temple? The King of Kings. The Lord of Lords was physically present there. And that's what makes a place glorious. The presence of the Lord. So the third promise is, this temple is more glorious than the first because Jesus is in it and was in it and walked in it. Well, this morning we want to think about three life lessons from from Haggai chapter two, and I hope these are um, helpful as we make our journey um, through uh, through our lives. So here's here's the first one. The first one is this. We'll look at four of them. We must choose contentment over comparison. We must choose contentment over comparison. Why were the older priests and people crying? (laughs) Because they were comparing Solomon's temple to the new temple and it didn't, didn't hold a candle to it as far as its size and its glory and its beauty. Have you discovered that comparison almost always leads to discouragement, discontent, dissatisfaction. I've told this story many times, but it, it's, it's a perfect illustration, and so I'll tell it again. So this was 40-some years ago. Diane and I are in our, our first ministry assignment Strongsville, Ohio. Um, church owned a duplex next to the church, a two-story brick duplex. Um, an older uh, couple lived in the lower uh, part of the church or the building, they, they were not a part of our church, but they, they rented it out to an older couple. And Diane and I and our uh, newborn son lived in the upper part of this little tiny duplex. And um, we, we enjoyed it there, although there were some challenges living there. It was very small. Um, Mr. and Mrs. Arnold Smith lived downstairs, and uh, um, they were uh, very nice people. Actually, the very first funeral message I ever gave uh, in my life was was for Mr. Smith, who died uh, a couple years after we were, were living in that duplex, and um, although we had a chance to, to witness to Mr. Smith, to my knowledge, he never received Christ as his Savior, never done a funeral before, and uh, now I'm doing a funeral for a person that is not a believer. That's when I made my 911 call to my dad, who at that time had been in ministry for about 40 years. I said, hey, dad, uh, I don't remember them teaching this in seminary. How do you do a funeral for someone that's not a believer? And he gave me some really, really good advice. But the Smiths lived down there. Um, they they were wonderful people. They liked to cook with lots of spices and onions. And um, they were also smokers. And so in that uh, summer, there was no air conditioning up there. On the summer days, we had our windows open, and oftentimes, if the wind was blowing in the right direction, it would carry that combination of liver and onions and spices and cigarette smoke up out their window, and then it would like blow it into our our uh, uh, apartment, and like mm, Smiths are cooking dinner again. <coughs> <laughs> Mr. Smith was hard of hearing. And so uh, we discovered that they like to watch the show Barney Miller. And I and I are in bed, and like clockwork at 1130, I hear the music coming up, the theme song to Barney Miller. I like to tell people I've never seen the show Barney Miller, but I've heard every episode. (laughs) You know, and, but you know, we were happy and we were content because we were in our first ministry. We were serving the Lord, and then I probably made a fatal mistake. The parade of homes came to Strongsville. Now, Strongsville is a very affluent suburb of of Cleveland. Uh, the Cleveland Browns practice facility was in Berea, which was just a couple miles away from Strongsville. Some of the Cleveland Browns players lived in Strongsville. Uh one time one of their players came and visited visit our service. I remember meeting uh, Charles White, who was a Heisman Trophy winner, winning uh, running back from USC, played for Cleveland Browns. And so I thought, oh, it'd be great to go to the Parade of Homes. We went to about six or seven different homes there in Strongsville, and then I came back, and I'm like, we live in a dump. <laughs> I didn't really say that. But all of a sudden, like, I'm feeling a little discontent. Comparison always leads to discontent. We do this all the time subconsciously. We compare houses, we compare cars, we compare jobs, we compare lots in life. And when we do that, we always look at somebody that maybe is a little better off and it leads to discontent. And that's why those people were crying. They were comparing. Comparing a physical structure. Comparison. Um, We need to learn contentment. The Apostle Paul writes about that uh, actually from a prison cell in Philippians chapter 4. He says, I've learned to be content whatever the circumstances. Paul says, this is something that I've learned. I've learned contentment I know what it is to be in need. I know what it is to have plenty. I have learned the secret of being content in any and every situation, whether well-fed or hungry, living in plenty or in want. I can do all this through him who gives me strength. Why was Paul able to say, I've learned contentment from a prison cell? It's because his contentment wasn't found in a place. It wasn't found in a position in life. It was found in a person. And he says, God, um, wherever you place me, I've learned, whether I have a little or a lot, I've learned contentment. And so, um, we need to choose contentment over comparison. Secondly, we need to remember the source of our strength, the source of our strength. So, three times here, uh, God comes to, to Zerubbabel, to Joshua, to Haggai, and to the people. He says, Be strong. Be strong be strong. When facing life's tasks and challenges, we need to be strong. It was Nehemiah that said when he was uh, leading the people to rebuild the walls of Jerusalem, and they they completed that task in 52 days. Nehemiah, and there was lots of opposition, and Nehemiah said, the joy of the Lord is my strength. Uh, We need to remember the source of our strength, and it's not In ourselves, but the source of our strength is who? It's God. It's God's word. It's God's promises. And so Paul says, when I am weak, then I am strong. And so when we're, when we're in a position where we're thinking and saying, I don't think I can do this. This is an overwhelming situation. I'm not sure how to handle it. That's a good place when we admit our weakness to God. That we need His help. We need His strength, and He promises to give it to us. I remember one of the, it's one of the first funerals that I did here years ago, when I first came, and it was um, George Agen and his wife, Maddie, and Maddie had fought a very long. Hard battle with cancer for years. Got down to not very many pounds and it was, it was, it was very, very difficult and Maddie passed away and had a church full of people and I'm relatively new here and I remember the, the caskets out there and I'm, I'm praying with the family and I'm just feeling overwhelmed with emotion and like, I'm not even sure I can preach a funeral message. God, I need your help and your strength. And when we recognize that and realize that, then we're in a good place because God gives you the strength in a supernatural way, and, and his power and his strength comes into your life. So I don't know what you're facing today, but we're all facing challenges. When we're weak, we're strong. When we rely on God, I can do all things through him who gives me strength. Be strong in the Lord and his word and his power and his might. Number three, application number three, your giftedness is needed. Your giftedness is needed. What did, what did God say after he said to be strong, be strong, be strong? And then he said what? And work. <laughs> and so the temple's not going to get built by itself. I need workers. I need people who will do the work that i 've called them to do, and so the the Word of God says to these these folks, Be strong and uh, all you people of the land and work and so um, our your giftedness my giftedness is is needed in the body of christ, and god 's gifted us all in Unique and individual ways. And Ephesians chapter 4 talks about that, that. That God's given us each gifts, And he describes some of those gifts. And then he says the body is built up as each part does its work. And so every person has a gift and is needed to encourage and build up the body of Christ. Your giftedness is needed. Lastly, number four is this. Let God's Spirit fill your temple. So what made the second temple greater than the first temple? We already pointed it out because Jesus was in the second temple. Let God's Spirit fill your temple. Now we need to be reminded, don't we, if we know Christ as our Savior. 1 Corinthians 16. Your bodies are what? The temple of the Holy Spirit who lives within you. Jesus, in in the uh, upper room discourse, says, I'm leaving and I'm sending another person. He won't come until I leave. He will be in you. That's the difference, Old Testament, New Testament. And so, if you know Christ as your Savior, let God's Spirit, His Holy Spirit and His presence, fill your temple. Ephesians five talks about, um, don't be drunk with wine and which is excess, but uh, the verbiage there is keep on being filled with the Spirit. And then there's evidence of that, of, of praising God and, uh, singing Psalms and hymns and spiritual songs and encouraging one another. That's because what? The Holy Spirit is filling us and using us and that's one of the evidences. The, the fruit of the Spirit is another evidence. Let God's Spirit who lives within us fill our temple. And the Bible talks about quenching the Holy Spirit. And, and so, Um, God lives within us. And he says, let his spirit fill your temple. I'll say this. It's not a matter of getting more of the Holy Spirit because he's a person. You can't have like half of them. It's a matter of letting the Holy Spirit have more control in our life. And so let me just conclude with um, this. And if you've watched the news and following the news you'll know there's a movement of God's spirit that's sweeping college campuses all across America I followed them very closely online February 8th Asbury University in Wilmore, Kentucky had a chapel service on February 8th speaker was done choir came up and sang, and that closing song is just the, the Spirit of God was there, and um, after that song, some, some of the students came, came forward toward the platform, began to pray, began to uh, have God work in their life, and uh, make a long story short, that um, campus chapel has had a movement of God going on. 24-7 for 11 days now. And people from all over the country that aren't even associated with Asbury University are driving there to say, to experience, and I don't know what word to, to use, whether revival's the right word, but certainly a movement of God. They want to see what that looks like. They want to be a part of that. You can see this online. Uh, they are, they are bringing to close the 24-7 worship because they've got to get back to some classes. But that's been going on. My friend, uh, pastor friend uh, Joe O'Neill, and he used to pastor in Grass Lake, and he's on the other side of the state, and I discovered uh, through social media, even a pastor friend drove from Western Michigan down to Asbury University and went to one of the services. just they, They wanted to see what it was like, and people from all over the United States are doing that. Well, now, that that has spread not just from Asbury, but it's spread to college campuses all over the United States. Samford University in Georgia. Cornerstone University in Grand Rapids. I just read yesterday a movement at Spring Arbor College not far from us. My alma mater, Cedarville University. They had a chapel service on Monday. Their president, Dr. White, had been down to Wilmore, Kentucky to not that far from where Cedarville is to see what this movement was all about. And a movement of God started on Cedarville's campus. And they had a chapel service planned out for Monday and Dr. White ended up not giving his message and, and it was just a God moving and God working in, in kids lives. And at eight o'clock Monday night, there was over a thousand students at the chapel at Cedarville University, worshiping and singing and and praising God and doing business with God. It lasted, well, it, it lasted several days now. I talked to my older brother yesterday, and him and his wife were on staff at Cedarville University, and I said, tell me what's going on at Cedarville. And he says, yeah, it's, it's, I don't know what to call it but something's happening and it's it's God moving in in students' lives and it's it's amazing to 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 sense that to be a part of that. And he told me that um as you know the president White's trying to just like get out of the way and let God direct Dr. White said the other day, "Okay, It's time for us as God's work in our lives to take this good news beyond the walls of this chapel. And so this weekend, um, hundreds of students from Cedar University decided to go to other college campuses. They went to Wright State University in Dayton. My brother told me there's a hundred students that went to Ohio State University. There's some students that went from Cedarville to Michigan State University. And I said, "What are what are they doing?" I said, "He said they're just going there to to encourage other college kids and to to tell them about Jesus." And this is happening in at least a dozen campuses all over the United States. What a movement of God! And in a day and age where we don't, we don't see much good news on TV, uh, be encouraged because there's a generation of young people who are serious about God and want to make a difference and they know that Jesus is the answer. Everyone's searching for something and they're taking that good news and they're sharing it. Fox News wanted to come down to Wilmore, Kentucky in Asbury uh, University and do a story on it. And uh, maybe some of you saw this. Tucker Carlson contacted them. And you know what the university said? Uh, no, we don't want you to come down. <laughs> you know, th- This is a God thing. This is not a news thing, a political thing. Just please, <laughs> please stay away. And they, they honored that. But uh, let God's spirit fill your temple. And you know what? The same spirit that's working in Asbury University and Cedarville University and Cornerstone University and, uh, all these universities, that same spirit lives within you and me. And may he fill our lives and use our lives. And I tell you what, I probably, I know what, um, a lot of evangelical pastors are thinking what I'm thinking about that movement, wouldn't it be great if it spilled over from college campuses to our churches and there was a movement that spread throughout the country? May that be so. Let's pray together. Lord, we humbly bow before you this morning. Lord, um, Thank you that um, your spirit lives within us. Lord, thank you for the reminder that what makes something glorious is not the external, not the size of a building, but what makes things glorious is your presence. And So may we sense your presence today in our midst. May the spirit of God uh, speak to each of us. Lord, may we worship you in spirit and in truth and lord we we thank you for the the movement of god that is happening on college campuses lord may it continue may it spread may our country um turn back to you and lord may it start with uh, each of our individual lives and we will thank you in jesus name amen